Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I, for one, know that they're a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. How you doing, my good friends? Welcome back, and thank you again for stopping by. Edward Browning of Manhattan, New York, had built himself quite a reputation for quite a while in New York City before he ever met his future wife at a dance back in 1926. He had a propensity for chasing and, of all things, catching young girls. The folks, I'm talking very young girls, around the age of 14, 15, and 16 man was referred to as the black sheep of his family at first because he went on his way own way to create a real estate business but things aren't always peaches and cream and i mean that literally as you'll see have yourself sit down let me tell you one that gets weirder as it goes Edward West Browning was born in the same year my great-grandpa that you've heard so much about, and that would be 1875. He was a highly successful millionaire real estate magnate. He rooted it out of place in the, for his business in the early years by buying up and building a parcel of highly impressive buildings in New York City. Before he did that, though, he graduated from Columbia University in New York City and done what all the upper crust did back in he toured europe me i'd much rather do a through run on the appalachian trail but that's just me he was known as an amazing artist who drew cartoons for his friends and family they were good enough to keep him in stitches all the time it was in the early 1900s when he went into the real estate business in the early years He'd built three white marble buildings in the upper west side of Manhattan that are still there to this day and still have his initials EWB and the family crest carved in the corners of them. In 1915, Edward married Nell Adele Lowen of New York City. They had a huge home in the upper west side of Manhattan, which occupied the top two floors of an apartment building he owned. Folks, this thing was a had a rooftop garden and a pond so big that it had a rowboat to go with it. Far be it for me to make a suggestion here, but if you like living in the country, why not move to the country? I reckon the need to be near the city for work overrode the need to move to the country, and if you can't move to the country, why, I guess you can spend some of that big money to move the country to you. Their home had seven of the 24 rooms loaded full of Chinese import furniture. 
Now, nowadays, Chinese furniture has pretty much got the reputation of being junk, and that wasn't always the case. Back then, each piece was unique and handmade. Generally, the entire piece was made from the same piece of wood. They had a music room, which was full of instruments of the day, and an exotic bird aviary full of screaming birds. A large dining room with an Italian water fountain and servants occupied or complete with their quarters and ordered to be handy 24 hours a day. It was written in the local newspapers that Edward combined magnificent opulence with inconceivable bad taste, when it probably sounds like it fits, don't it? Three years into the marriage, Edward placed a newspaper ad stating that a prominent wealthy old New York family were seeking a sweet little girl of about four years old for adoption. Folks, this is where my flags went up, but that's just me. This resulted in the adoption of Marjorie. Dorothy, who Edward called Sunshine, joined the family two years later in response to the same kind of ad. And just to make sure that nobody could lay claim to his fortune, he and Nellie together signed the adoption papers with some kind of an argument spun into it to keep anybody else from ever having claimed anything which is typical in an adoption. All was going along just swimmingly until 1924 when Nellie got a gut full of Edward and ran off with her dentist, taking little Marjorie with her. I guess I don't tell him what she got a gut, up, gut full of and left, but pretty much tore Edward a new one on the way out by forcing the sale of all his furnishings in their home. I guess nothing says love like having your tooth drilled, does it? That's when something cracked in Edward. Couldn't have been, uh, you know, then happening his entire life, I guess. Maybe something was going on, but out, nobody outside the house knew it. He became known to indulge in some rather odd, believe, unbelievable, ill-thought-out behavior, and that's just to say the least. Despite the wealth that little Dorothy was bathed in, like a Rolls-Royce customized with a movie screen and a newfangled radio, little Sunshine was lonely without her sister and mother. So Edward placed another ad, this time for a pretty, refined girl aged about 14, with the intention that he would adopt the right applicant to be a playmate for his daughter. It would appear to anybody looking back on it that he was quite possibly a predator who used his $300 million fortune to attract and groom young girls. Of course, back then, not much was known about that type thing. You know, Edward had, after all, married his 26-year-old file clerk, Adele, when he was 44. Today, we know this kind of a age difference isn't as uncommon as people used to think, but back then it was tabloid fodder, though it didn't rise to the level of what's about to come next, folks. I guess you might say that the ad went viral for the time and because it got 12,000 responses. Edward personally pilfered through every single one of them, and decided to adopt 16-year-old Mary Louise Spas of Astoria, Queens. Newspapers in the area covered her rags-to-riches story like she won the biggest jackpot in lottery history. Unfortunately, the Cinderella maker Edward fudged his age by shaving off a whole decade in all the legal documents for what I couldn't tell you, but, <laughs> uh, but I'm sure you're thinking the same thing I am. Adoption just might not have been the only thing on his mind. Little did Edward know that 
Mary Louise had did the same thing. After checking her school records, Edward was just completely horrified to find out that she was an old bag. Well, by his definition, that's what he said. She was 21, which led to her being de-adopted. Of course, before she moved out, she attempted suicide. I couldn't find out how, but I guess it was a last-ditch effort to get Edward to change his mind, or maybe she really thought she'd be better off dead than back where she came from. I'm not sure. In 1931, Mary sued Edward for $500,000 in damages, alleging that he attacked her and threatened her with a revolver. The case was resolved before trial and with an, of course, undisclosed settlement. Thanks to the monetary and other assistance he gave to the local Phi Lambda Tau chapter, PLT for short, rumor had it back then that PLT actually stood for pretty little things, Edward was invited to their dance in March of 1926. He later told reporters that he belonged to at least 20 dancing clubs in which he maintained a purely fatherly interest. By supporting a sorority, he gave his members an opportunity of healthy, wholesome entertainment. Uh-huh. At least that's what his tale was. Imagine a 56-year-old man sitting in the middle of a bunch of young girls offering fatherly entertainment. I'm not saying that it couldn't happen, but after what the what he says, 56 year old man had just been through, it does send my brain wondering just what in the heck he's up to. 15 year old Frances Bell Heenan was actually a member of PLT when she showed up at the dance with her boyfriend, who she really wasn't interested in to start with. It was always a question as to who put the moves on who, but Frances ended up giving Mr. Browning her address after they spent the evening trying to dance each other into the dirt. They were both considered experts in the latest dance craze of the day, which was called the Charleston. Then ten days later, Mr. Browning took Frances out for dinner in the Everglades to the Everglades, which is an upscale nightclub, and then to see the Greenwich Village Follies. Nothing but the best for Edward. He showed up in his custom blue Rolls Royce with a bouquet of orchids, two dozen roses, and even brought carnations to her mother. Francis noticed that he seemed to have an unending supply of green handkerchiefs stuffed in all the pockets that he had, which he gladly handed out to all the young ladies that they happened to run into that evening. And as he always did, he came up with a nickname for her. He called her Peaches. He got that from his chauffeur after he asked his, his opinion of what he thought of Francis. The chauffeur said that she uh, was a real peach. Because his antics had attracted so much attention already, he couldn't go anywhere without the press gathering around and wanting a statement from him. And he was happy to oblige. She is a lovely girl, five foot seven inches tall, 145 pounds with her dress on. Huh. Has blonde hair, blue eyes, and very well matured physically. Hmm. That's what he told him with a straight face. I can't imagine a man standing in front of a pack of reporters today saying anything like that about a 15-year-old child and then being able to ever show his face in public again, let alone maybe survive the incident. Of course, since Edward had hung a nickname on her, it was only fitting that she returned the favor, and the one she picked drove the media that much more up a tree. Peaches called Edward Daddy. Daddy found Peaches very attractive, but now that everything was breaking open and like one of the biggest scandals that ever 
got uncovered, the press started writing about how Peaches, who claimed to be a flapper, just didn't fit the flapper mold very well. A flapper was supposed to be skinny as a rail. Peaches was continually fat-shamed by the press. They described her as having barrel-like legs and an over-plump figure, and even it said that she had bovine features. And didn't help anything when she gained 20 pounds after that. Then on March 27th, just a few weeks into the mess, somebody snuck into the apartment Peaches shared with her mother and threw something on her face while she was asleep. Whatever it was burned her chin, neck, and arm. That's why if you look up pictures of her and Daddy, you'll see uh, quite a few of them with her wearing bandages. The police were, of course, called, and after giving the whole place a good searching, they found that there was no trace of a forced entry, and to top it all off, and uh, there was no acid or anything found in the bedding or night clothes. Apparently, the acid shooter was a regular Lee Harvey Oswald when it came to hitting his target. Neither Daddy nor Peaches ever discussed the attack through the years, or at least I couldn't find it if they did, and it's still a complete mystery as to what exactly happened that night. In the aftermath of the acid attack, Mr. Bram Browning, Daddy, promised Peaches that he would get her a big engagement ring, and once again, the press went nuts. On April 3rd, Peaches told the press that she didn't want Daddy for his money or career, the reason for the comment came when a question asked by a reporter. He just came right out and referred to her as more or less a gold digger. Peaches continued, I'm a home-loving person, and I want intellectual companionship with a man who I can feel safe with. All said with an obligatory straight face, of course. As you can imagine, somebody at Child Welfare Services who was just happened to subscribe to one of the local newspaper and actually took time to read it, noticed the situation. Not just because of Peaches, but because of the fact that Daddy Browning and his little sunshine had been on the radar since the Mary Louise Spa scandal. Folks, you ain't heard nothing yet. Stick around. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. Once again, they had a few questions, such as what exactly type of relationship did Daddy have or intend to have with Peaches? Then they, as they tend to do, went even further with it by questioning the sanity and motherly abilities of Peaches' mother for allowing the whole thing to go on in the first place, especially now that Peaches herself hadn't attended school since the previous November. And once again, just stepped the whole thing up a notch or two, Peach's mother stood before the press and bragged about her daughter being very popular with the boys. Uh, this was uh, a custom with Daddy Browning, always being one step ahead of the authorities and all. So Peaches and Daddy were married on April 10, 1926, complete with the consent of the bride's mother and now estranged father. You can <laughs> tell you, you just can't make this stuff up, folks. You'd think that since that bit of news sent the press over the deep end again, the two lovebirds would maybe just lay low for a while and let it blow over. Well, you'd be like me and you'd be wrong. There apparently was no shame involved on anybody's part as both Daddy and Peaches with their flashy peacock blue Rolls Royce, followed by a whole gaggle of reporters and curious onlookers, 
ran the roads every day, going on perpetual non-stop shopping sprees, spending money like they wasn't making it anymore. Daddy, in order to irritate his critics, ordered that each of the items be individually wrapped so the daily take would look even bigger. Of course, and make no mistake about it, Peaches didn't just get her piece of the pie, she got the whole thing. And still wasn't enough. She told the press that Daddy gave her a thousand dollar bill every morning. Fucks, they don't even make those anymore. We've been married about a week and I've spent seven thousand dollars. Isn't that wonderful, she said. It's dang near a hundred and twenty thousand dollars today in today's money, folks. <laughs> that would be about well, hundred and twenty thousand dollars be a twenty thousand dollars a day. So take that for what it's worth. But by the end of the summer, where the press had practically worn their fingers out in the crab claws on their typewriters from writing the words Peaches and Daddy, cold hard reality started to set in. The African gander that Daddy bought, and which appeared with most of, appeared with them a lot in the pictures if you look it up, honked nonstop day and night and dropped its greasy black droppings from one end of their apartment to the other, ruining all the rare carpets. Daddy fancied himself a practical joker and would send rubber eggs and trick spoons to all the other folks sitting there trying to enjoy dinner in all the upscale restaurants, whether they knew him or not. Daddy thought it was downright funny and laughed out loud right in the people's faces as Peaches was so embarrassed that she felt like crawling under the table every time he did it. And he did it several times a night, every night that they went out. No wonder... He liked the kids much. He acted like one. Peaches asked Daddy for a dog. He went out and came back with three. Three tiny little handmade porcelain dolls. Dogs, that is. This, Father Goose still honking and making a mess all over the place. Then Peaches told Daddy that she wanted a car. And Daddy bought her one. A toy one. Sounds like Daddy's going broke, don't it? Then Peaches said that she wanted a baby. I don't know what in the world went through daddy's mind at that point but he told her that they could just go get a japanese princess who they could take and on walks with them just all over the place and just to drive the press nuts what in the name of all that's good went through his mind to come up with that one i couldn't even begin to understand finally peaches and her mother both had their done daddy meters hit full at the same time packed up their whole summer's worth of bounty and left daddy on october 2nd Yes, Peach's mother had been in on all the shopping sprees, too, and had spent just as much as Peach's herself. No wonder Daddy was going broke. Now, I'd say that the reporters probably got a heck of a headache when they heard that one. Normally, they're chomping it to bit for a good headline, but I figure by now they're looking up at the ceiling to see if there's a place they could hook their belt that would maybe hold their body weight as they kicked a chair out from under themselves. Back in the that time, no-fault divorce just didn't exist in New York, so naturally, that led to a granddaddy of a divorce trial, which started in January 1927. Over a thousand people showed up to hear Peach's testimony, which a judge ruled would be open to the reporters and the public. It just keeps getting better, don't it? As it turned out, the testimony of Peach's Browning didn't disappoint anybody. In fact, by 1926, standards, Peaches described the whole gallery a weird featuring Daddy Browning. She testified that Daddy continually wanted her to parade around the apartment without a stitch of clothes on 
and even show up at the breakfast table and eat that way. That got a response out of Daddy, who jumped up and yelled, absolutely not. It was very cold. It would have been foolish to ask her to do that. Peaches kept right on laying the bone to her dear old dad by saying that Daddy made what the media called certain sexual attempts, which might be classified as abnormal. I couldn't figure out what exactly they meant by that one, but from what we've heard so far, there's just no telling. And she still wasn't done yet. She said that Daddy wanted her to meet with Marion Dockerell, a cult leader who Daddy was said uh, Daddy said was about 56 but looked 20. Daddy even had a naked picture of her to prove it, which he gladly pulled out and showed the peaches. Daddy took Peaches to have lunch with Miss Dockrell, whose expose on life in Aleister Crowley's circle was running in the newspapers at times. Now, we all know who Aleister Crowley was. He was a great Satanist. Uh, well, anyway, but Peaches said that she didn't like it, her very much, and that's what her testimony was. Peaches said that one night she woke up from a dead sleep to find Daddy sandpaper in his shoe trees. Yes, he was really sandpaper and shoe trees, folks. That's not some kind of textual, sexual term like you sometimes hear. Daddy wanted to make make him smaller for some reason. I guess the weirdo wanted an audience or something because Peaches said that when she fell back to sleep, he threw a phone book at her. Apparently, she still didn't get the message and dozed off again. This time, she woke up when he stuck an alarm clock in her ear. Then, after rolling around on the floor locked up in laughter, Daddy went right back to sandpaper in his shoe trees. That did it. She got up, got dressed, and said she was leaving. Now, then, that got Daddy's attention, and he immediately dropped the sanding project and started crying. Peaches said that she then, or he then walked over on his hands and knees and promised that he would never act that way again, so she decided to stay this time, I guess, looking behind him at the pile of goodies stacked in the room corner might have helped her make that decision and just when you might think peaches was done came this once again in the middle of the night she woke up to find his hands or find him on his hands and knees on the floor in what she said was some kind of weird looking pajamas he was making funny noises and she told him to stop it immediately the press gobbled this one up with the gusto of a hound dog and started referring to daddy as wolf wolf man when Daddy Woof Woof got his turn to testify, he simply denied every bit of it to the hilt. That was his story, and he was sticking to it, so the press were disappointed at the lack of theatrics on his part. The judge then retired to his chambers for the grueling decision. Nobody knows what happened back there, but it didn't take him long to come back out and side with Daddy and grant him illegal separations from Peaches. The decision didn't end there, though. It also cut Peaches off, and so, well, some, from her support from from Daddy, and she wouldn't receive any from whatsoever from there on in. She had been getting about three hundred bucks a month. By this time, I'd say that the press was glad to eke her final reports out on Peaches and Daddy. But that wasn't the end of Peaches Browning. She did what any young woman that found herself short on cash with a wealth of publicity to back it up did in the 1920s. She hit the vaudeville circuit. Again, the press dragged themselves out to do 
reviews on her shows and review it they did. They, whether or not it was just to get peaches out of their hair, pretty much trashed her from start to finish, but the crowds kept showing up anyway. To beat it all, neither of them ever completed the divorce, so Peaches was still married to Daddy, legally, and when he stroked out and finally dropped over in 1934, probably still standing on his shoe trees in the middle of the night. But, as it turned out, Daddy had cut Peaches out of his will, and everything went to his little sunshine. So what did Peaches do? She sued for what she called her dower rights, and managed to win a third of his property. Just before her 40th birthday in 1950, Frances told the press that she would never unlive the name Peaches, but the name was now used only in people who didn't know her very well. She was described as having a splendid sense of humor about herself and her by then four failed marriages. Yeah, yeah she got married and everything and still wasn't ever divorced from Edward. She was asked if she would do it all over again if she could live her life over in that same way, would she do it again? Well, she said that she would. It's funny how your mind works when you're 15, 16. All I could think of was taking that Rolls Royce to school and not having to ride the bus or the subway. Daddy was a very good-looking man and was no dope. Today, I still think of him, but I was never really in love with him. That's what she said the last time she had an interview. She allegedly still owned five of the six Manhattan apartment buildings from Daddy's estate at the time of her death in 1956 at the age of 46 after she accidentally fell in her bathroom. And that was it for Peaches and Daddy. I hope you enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast and don't forget to follow us on whatever podcatcher you're listening. Come join us on Facebook group Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast where we can talk about anything Appalachian or whatever else you want to get into. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian murder mystery or legend, and I'll see you then.